0: Welcome to Thoughtful Planning, the place where real conversation, expert insight, and a touch of humor meet to turn our end-of-life uncertainties into self-assurance. I'm your co-host Santiago, a history buff and a big kid at heart.
1: And I'm Honey, your guide through the intricate dance of planning with care and a whole lot of warmth. Every week, we're here to turn those intimidating are-we-ready moments into confident everything is under control moments. Today's journey is one you won't want to miss. Hi, welcome to Thoughtful Planning. I'm Honey.
0: And I'm Santiago. You know, as, as we go through this journey of discovery on end-of-life planning, I'm finding out just how much I don't know about what I don't know. And I've always thought that our last episode when we were talking Will's, that that was like the end-all document for ensuring our family was taken care of. But as we found out, there's probably a better... All-encompassing document that could help us with our final wishes, make sure they're followed. So, the essential question we have today is: How do I know if and what type of trust is right for me?
1: Hmm. Another great question, babe. <laughs> and we're in luck because today we are at episode two of our legal trilogy with Sean McCammon, the estate planning guru from McCammon Law. If you thought wills were something, wait till you hear about trusts. They're like the Swiss Army knife of estate planning. Versatile, but a bit complex to unfold. Missed our full introduction in episode six? Go check it out and then join us as we continue to uncover the legal mysteries of estate planning. Remember, while we're here to inform, this isn't personal legal advice. For specific advice, consult your professional. Ready? Let's get started.
0: Okay. Welcome back, Sean. Today, we're going to move on to trust. It's uh, you know a key part of our personal estate planning and that of some of our listeners, they just might not be familiar with it. Can you start by explaining what a trust is and then share with us why you find this area particularly important in estate planning? Sure.
2: I, hopefully, I can live up to guru. I, you know, I didn't know that was going to be my my official title, but uh, I'm happy to help out. You're, you're, yeah, thanks for having guru. me on again.
0: That makes, that makes any <laughs>
2: all right. <laughs> uh, glad to help out. Appreciate you having me on. So, yeah, I mean the the reason in that last episode, I know we're not going to rehash all that, but we talked about estate planning and avoiding kind of the default probate system that the court has set up for you. And one of the tools that is most common to do that is a living trust and I guess kind of my analogy that I usually use is, you know, if you think of the trust as kind of like a bucket or a safe, when we update the title to the house or to checking account, savings account, things like that into the person's name as trustee of the trust, it's still theirs to do with whatever we want. But because we've put it in that bucket, we've put it in that trust, whatever's in that bucket or trust is exempt from probate and court involvement or from the state deciding how things are going to be handled. So, we don't have to go down that whole probate court route where we're hiring probate attorneys and paying for probate petitions and publishing notice in the paper to creditors a lot of times and doing those kinds of things. We can keep things more private, streamline the distributions, get things done quicker and avoid avoid kind of the whole cost and delay associated with the court process. And so, that's one of the reasons that we use a living trust primarily as kind of a probate avoidance tool. But a trust also, with those assets that are in the trust, the trust also sets up this legal obligation on your trustee, your successor trustee, you might name, it might be a child, it might be another trusted advisor or somebody like that. But it requires them to use all those assets for your care as long as you're alive too. So, it helps protect you during any period of incapacity as well. And so... I just feel like when we have a living trust in place, we're checking off a lot of those boxes that we want to be able to check off, avoiding the state's default rules, keeping the state out of things, making things easy and as cost-effective as possible for our heirs. They're going to have enough to deal with as it is, right? We want to make things as simple as possible. Or protecting assets for kids, things like that. We can just do all of that within that one instrument. And so, we're really accomplishing a lot by doing that kind of planning, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what I really liked about it is one of the things I told my husband when we started all this is, I want to make this as simple and easy as possible for our kids or each other, whoever goes first. Like I want to make this as easy as possible. And so, I thought when we met you that this was the route to go.
2: Yeah, and that's one thing a lot of people don't think of too. A lot of times, like you're saying, they're thinking about, you know, well, when we're gone and our kids get this and sometimes they forget that first step, what happens when something happens to one of us, right? We want to make things as easy on our surviving spouse as possible too. And instead of forcing them to go through the the probate process and prove up wills at court and, and do all of that that could be necessary, we can help avoid that with the trust planning too.
0: And not having to force somebody to make a decision when they might not be in that right state of mind. You know, right now we're thinking Mm -hmm. pretty clearly, but when an event happens, you know, like when I had cancer, we were thinking about one thing and that was just surviving cancer. We didn't think about everything else. And that's where the the estate
2: or the trust would come in. Mm -hmm.
1: Could you tell us about the different types of trusts and their purposes?
2: Yeah, I think generally they kind of fall into two categories, which would sort of be like your revocable living trust. Sometimes you'll hear the word revocable trust, living trust, family trust, anything that you kind of retain the right to continue to put assets in or take assets out of or make amendments and changes to over time as family dynamics change or things like that. That's typically referred to as like a living trust. And it's a revocable document, something that you can amend and revoke change over time. And then kind of the big picture on the other side is irrevocable trust. That's something that is not going to be easily changed, sometimes not at all, sometimes not without court supervision or intervention. And there are reasons that you might set up an irrevocable trust. It might be for some tax planning purposes or charitable trust planning or special needs trust planning. And maybe we'll get into some of those. But those would be set up so that they're not easily changed. They set assets aside. That trust gets its own tax ID number, has its own tax return requirement, and there's benefits to using that. But typically, for most people, you know, 90% of the clients that I have come in, they're needing to be set up with that revocable living trust that they can continue to keep updated over time. If they sell a home and acquire a new home, they still keep it in the trust and they still have the flexibility to continue just managing everything like they have been up until that point in time. And so, from a day-to-day perspective, not much changes. And that's usually what we're talking about for the majority of our clients, you know, but like I said, there are other trust planning tools that can be used for other specific reasons.
1: I just want to circle back quick when you were talking about, let's say you purchase a new home or you get rid of the, like you sell a home. I remember that was one of my concerns. I was thinking, man, if we add another property Do something like that, that means we're going to have to start all over in the process. But then that's when you reassured me that no, if you make sure and put it in the name of the trust, then it goes in there.
2: Yeah. I'll just give you like a simple example. You know, we're talking about the trust kind of being like a bucket. So, like when I have a couple, you know, like yourselves or anybody else, they own a home as part of finishing that trust. And this is really almost as important as having the trust, you got to make sure you fund the trust. That just means you put the assets in there, right? Because the trust only governs the assets that are inside the trust or in the trust name. So, you know, I'll record a deed to help transfer the property, the primary residence from them individually to them as trustees. Like I said, it's still theirs to do what what they want. But if they sell that property and they buy another one, they just have to make sure when they take title to the new one, it's in the name of the trust that puts it right back in that bucket and everything is still covered. And so whatever it says to do with those assets, it's still still in place. So you're still still squared away. And as you acquire other assets, let's say you just open up a new bank account, same kind of thing. You just want to make sure you open up that new account, you know, in your names as trustees of the trust. That way it's automatically put right in that bucket and you're all set to go. Now the one kind of caveat to that is uh, because sometimes I have clients do this, you know, where they say, I want the account at this bank to go to this person and we list the account information. Well, if you close that account and you open a new account that you want to go to somebody, we might have to amend the trust to reflect the fact that we actually close that account and we set up a new account just to make sure that everything's squared away. But generally speaking, if you kind of have the trust set up where it basically says, you know, I want my assets to go to my kids, as long as the assets are in the name of the trust, you know, we might not even have to do any kind of an amendment with the trust itself.
1: Okay. Sorry. I still want to circle back on this because... One thing I remember when I went, after we got all of our paperwork done and we went into your office and got the binder, there's post-its that, we were, that were put on different pages to help us remember, like, you need to fund the trust. One thing I want to say is I really like the part where you handled the property portion for us. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, made a world of difference. <laughs> yeah. Now, there are other things. Yes, I still have to do or we have to do to fund the trust, like you said, but I like also how you laid it out for us and you had the post-it notes, do this, do this, do this. So I guess what I'm saying to our listeners is when you're out there looking, interviewing attorneys, ask them what their process is to help you through this. And also, I know I ask a lot of questions. You can ask Sean. (laughs) I remember (laughs) laughing a couple.
2: (laughs) That's okay.
1: And he's very generous with giving me answers to my questions. So, I just want to make sure and prepare our listeners. If you're out there shopping for an attorney, you know, interviewing for an attorney, you know, I hope you find that one that that's like Sean.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And it, it, to just highlight with a point that you're driving home there, when you're talking about doing a trust, it's really a twofold event, right? It's getting the trust. And then it's getting those assets in the trust. Because if you don't get any of the assets in the trust, what do you still have? You still have a probate issue hanging out there. The whole point of doing the living trust was to avoid court involvement and probate. And so, you've got to get those assets actually updated in the name of the trust. And that's just as important as getting the trust itself if you're going to go down that road.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know one of the banks we were dealing was super easy. We went in. It was signed to paperwork. Says, yeah, we know what we're doing and knocked it out. The other one, not so much. but.
1: Right. Some of them don't offer the trust part, but in that instance, I believe it's the, uh, help me with the words. You Sean. can do like a pay on death beneficiary
2: yeah. designation. Yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah. so that's for, that's for, for, that. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, you know, most of the banks that I deal with, regional banks, national banks, credit unions, a lot of them are used to dealing with trusts and can retitle an account in the name of the trust. No problem. But every once in a while we'll get a bank or credit union that just doesn't want to do that for whatever reason. And so to kind of get around that, you can still leave the account in your name, but then on the account, you can actually list who's the pay on death beneficiary in the event that I'm gone and you can list the trust. So it'll actually kick over into the trust at that point in time. If that's kind of the only alternative, you don't want to switch banks and you want to stay with that relationship, then you could kind of go about it that way.
1: I'm sorry. I got you one keep more going, question. Keep going. Because this, what you just said reminded me of the pour over will.
2: Yeah. That's exactly what we use a pour over will for is kind of a backup catch-all device. And it basically is a will, just like we had talked about in the last session. But instead of saying, I want this property to go so-and-so, or I want them to get this asset, all the pour over will does is basically say, back to kind of our bucket analogy, right? If there's any assets that I forgot to get in my trust, I want those poured over into my trust to be administered according to what my trust says. And so, that's just kind of a way we make sure that just in case the client opens up an account or acquires a piece of property, forgets to designate a beneficiary or forgets to put it in the trust, we have that as kind of a backup. Now, that being said, there's going to be some kind of court involvement to effectuate that because we're going to be relying on the will again. But a lot of times, it might be a short-circuited summary probate. Some states will call it like a summary probate or in Texas, we have like a muniment of title or Different things that might be available to kind of help streamline the fact that all we're looking for is a court order that says this is now part of the trust. So.
0: so, for those that haven't figured it out, Honey reads every piece of paper that comes in front of her and like line by line. Me, I'm just like sign here, okay, I'll sign. It, but
2: anyway. no, that's that's no problem. I like I say, I have all kinds of clients that'll come in. Sometimes I think you know I get get some that are just like tell me where to sign, and some go through everything with a. A fine-tooth comb, and we go through it all together. And I just try and make the process as easy as possible to keep it moving forward and meet mm-hmm. the people where they're at, kind of thing. Because I think one thing sometimes attorneys can do is just basically, you know, slide a fifty-page intake sheet across the table and say, you know, fill this out and call me in the morning, and you know, nothing ever gets done because everybody just gets bogged down with a big, huge intake sheet. So I try and make it a little more conversational, casual, professional, but we mm-hmm. can do this in a way that still keeps the ball moving forward. And then kind of help on the back end, like you were saying, honey, you know, where we say, okay, here's the trust. We took care of the real estate. Now you need to get this certificate of trust over to the bank to get those accounts updated, things like that. And I should just kind of insert a little general warning caveat to anybody who's listening to this. I do the same things when I have little lunch and learn seminars, you know, I don't want people to walk away from this and saying, oh yeah, I have a trust and I forgot to get stuff in it, or I'm going to put my IRA in the trust. Whenever we're talking about IRAs, 401ks, or qualified plans, we don't move those into the trust because we don't want to trigger any taxable events by moving those in the trust. And so, what we need to do is make sure the beneficiaries are how we want on those inherited or I'm sorry, on those uh, 401ks, IRAs, retirement accounts. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'll make the trust the beneficiary of those. So, those funds will move over into the trust, but your trust has to be drafted a certain way in order to deal with that. So, I just like to caution people, don't finish up with the podcast or leave the video and say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to move this into my trust when you're talking about an IRA or 401k or qualified account, those stay Mm -hmm. in your name and we rely on the beneficiary designations for those. And that's where it's good to get some professional help, especially if you've got Mm -hmm. retirement accounts, qualified accounts, and things like that. You want to make sure that all the pieces are moving together, working together, and that you're not doing something to inadvertently kind of mess up that puzzle.
0: Okay. So with that and talking about taxes and stuff, We've got a situation or a question. It was a situation from one of our our listeners. And again, I know that the advice that you're going to give when you're talking about this is relative to Texas or maybe even California. But just so they have an idea of where they need to go. So the first situation is this listener said they have a family member that's disabled or is on disability and they'd like to leave the estate to them but they don't want them to lose their disability or run into any other unforeseen financial issues, taxes, and all that stuff because of what they left them. What would be the best legal approach in your opinion?
2: Yep, I think I see that fairly regularly where a client will come in and maybe they have a child that's on Medicaid or, you know, somebody's got different health issues or been in an accident or whatever the case might be. They're receiving some kind of state assistance. And if they were to receive any kind of inheritance, you know, the threshold is so low as to what will disqualify you from receiving those benefits that even a small inheritance will take you off of that that state assistance. And then you have to spend all that down on your care. And then you have to spend a year reapplying to get it all back to get your benefits back. And so, the main tool for kind of avoiding that, like what we do when we're doing living trust drafting for people, is we will include kind of a backup special needs trust in the trust itself so that if any of the beneficiaries that you've named in your trust actually down the road end up being on some kind of means-tested program, their share could stay in your trust, for example, and be distributed a little bit at a time to supplement their needs without ever being a countable resource of theirs and knocking them off whatever program they may be on. So, that's sort of like a standby special needs trust that's built into our general living trust. Sometimes, we'll have clients who you know, they, they've got maybe a child, a parent, a sibling, whoever, who's going to be on some kind of program like that, and they already have money they want to give and fund for their care. And sometimes we'll establish a whole separate standalone special needs trust an irrevocable trust, kind of like what we were talking about, so that we can set this money aside and protect it for the benefit of that person without it being an accountable resource of theirs. And other people can know they can contribute to it. And It can't be changed. It's for the benefit of that person. And so, sometimes we'll also do that type of planning kind of separate and apart from your own individual living trust. But through either of those vehicles, we should be able to accomplish the planning that will take care of this specific concern. Okay. Wow, thank thank you. you.
1: All right. I got another question from a listener. So, as a small business owner, what considerations and legal steps should she take if she wishes to leave her business to her young children or a family member? What are the best practices for ensuring a smooth transition of ownership and management and how can she prepare her business now for this future change? And then additionally, what implications (laughs) might this have for her estate plan and for the future financial security of her children? or family members who inherit the business?
2: So you could probably have a podcast on that question alone I mean, yeah, in, know, in, in, in reality. <laughs> yeah, and that's okay though. But I guess just generally speaking, you know, because I have clients who come in and they have businesses. One of the things that I think is important is that, and it depends on, you know, how long you've had the business and how old the kids are, children are, things like that. But a lot of times, you will see the business doesn't succeed when the baton is passed. And that's because the kids were not involved at all earlier on. So, you know, one of the things I usually recommend is, you know, is there something we can do to encourage some participation from the next generation so that this entity has a better chance of succeeding? You know, what can we do in that regard? And so that opens up a discussion with the client on what we might want to do. And if it's a sole proprietorship, should we look at maybe like an LLC or a corporation so we can bring them in as some minority shareholders or minority interest owners and and they've got a little skin in the game and so they're invested in it and they want to contribute and participate. And so those types of conversations are worth having when you're a business owner and you want to make sure you're getting it to the next generation in a successful, smooth transition. Another part of that though, too, is kind of back to our discussion about probate where when you have a will in place or you have nothing in place and everything's going to kind of go through that court process where we're talking about, the big issue with that related to business owners that I see is the time delay because there's no immediate succession of ownership or authority for dealing with business assets and receivables and contracts and and things like that. It can take time to get somebody appointed as the executor or the administrator to handle the estate and deal with those types of assets. So, a lot of times when I have clients with businesses, one of the things I'm talking to them about is, hey, we might want to look at trust planning so we can have a living trust in place. We can assign your membership interest in your LLC to the trust or we can set things up to where we can more quickly deal with That transition so that we don't just leave things hanging out to dry and all of a sudden stuff starts falling apart because there could be a lot of pending contracts or money that needs to be collected or things like that. So, we want to get somebody in place that can deal with that right away. And so, having the planning in place ahead of time will help circumvent the issues that can be created from having to go through the court process, the probate process, things like that. So, it's kind of a combination, you know, having those entities in place like LLCs and corporations to help with maybe some asset and tax planning, having your will and trust in place so you can avoid probate or court involvement perhaps. But then just the practical aspect of maybe you need to get them a little bit involved as you get closer to making that baton pass so that they know what's going on and they can help ensure the success of the entity moving forward. So, I know that was kind of a big question. Mm -hmm. There was really a lot to cover but i hope that kind of gives some insight and feedback into the things that i'd be thinking about if i was in that position
1: yeah
0: i mean even like here in bernie where we live when we're talking to different people there's some of these businesses that have been around since the 1800s you know and just ensuring that that smooth handover occurs is important to the family just to continue and the community also yep so so this situation comes from actually a friend of ours it's not them but a friend of theirs so a friend of a friend so a married couple worked hard all their life and they're they're a little bit older and they live a comfortable life they've got a house and some land and well one of them has come down with dementia and they're going to require long term nursing care so as the processes increase the medical expenses have increased and they're finding themselves in a position where they're going to dwindle down their savings, and then they're possibly going to have to sell their house and do this other stuff just to take care of one of the two, you know, in the in this marriage. So they were wondering, is there any strategies that they can take so that they can get assistance from the government, but not lose their home? Like they were thinking maybe transfer the stuff to their children now and stuff like that. So.
2: Yeah. So, there's a lot that goes into this question, you know, because you're talking about Medicaid planning and trust planning and whether it's a blended family and the issues that that might implicate when you start moving assets around, things like that. And, you know, like I said, I do estate planning, but there's even kind of a more specialized subset where attorneys focus specifically on Medicaid planning. So, there's kind of a group of elder law attorneys. Typically, you'll hear like people in my position, like I I will often call myself an estate planning attorney. But then if I have somebody who's solely focused on Medicaid qualification, planning, spending assets down, setting up trusts in order to move assets out of their name, a lot of times I'll actually refer them to a specific elder law attorney or Medicaid planning attorney who can focus on these kinds of issues. Because there are some tools that you can use because in order to qualify for Medicaid and things like that, you're only allowed so much money in the bank and you know, so many assets and things like that. So, there can be some trust that gets set up that help deal with the income and assets from kind of a qualification standpoint and then also to protect those assets when the person passes away, you know, Medicaid doesn't try and claw everything back and recover against the estate. So, there are some tools that can be used. A lot of times I'll refer those clients to a specific elder law attorney or or Medicaid attorney who can help do that because One part of that is setting it up, and another part is really kind of helping to hold their hand after the fact in making sure that they're managing those trust property to not violate any of the rules. So, you know, there's kind of a certain set of staff members that you need in order to kind of do that sort of management on behalf of the clients. And so, certain offices are set up to really kind of do that kind of thing. The one thing I guess I would kind of caution against just generally or at least some things to be aware of is, you know, because I hear this comment too, like, I'll just transfer the property to my son. So a couple things is that, you know, Medicaid has a look back window. So when you transfer something, they get to look back. And it's a state by state thing, but the general rule is 60 months, five years. Last time I checked, California was like 30 months. But they'll look to see, okay, did you transfer away anything in order to try and qualify for Medicaid? And... If you did, they get to take that into account and they'll run a formula to see if you have any kind of penalty period, that kind of thing. So, you need to be aware of the fact that just giving it away isn't the be-all and end-all to satisfying or fixing the problem. The other thing is that I'll have clients say, well, what I'll do is I'll just add my son, Johnny, to title with me. That way, when I die, he's already on title. The other thing I kind of caution people about in that regard is remember that when you add somebody to title if Johnny gets in an auto accident or gets a divorce or something like that, potentially you've just added his liabilities or his creditors to your home. And that liability may follow to that asset, right? When somebody's trying to collect on some kind of judgment. And so, you want to be careful with that kind of thing. Also too, in Texas, you know, with our homestead laws, if you add somebody to title, you might mess up your homestead exemption. And so, you could have some issues in that regard as well. And so, Those are just some things to be considering. I would encourage somebody who is at the point in time where they know they're going to need nursing home care within the next few years, probably worth consulting some kind of an elder law attorney who focuses on Medicaid planning because they can analyze all the assets, all of the income, and determine what rules or what tools fit within Medicaid's rules to give them the best chance to A, qualify, and B, make sure we limit whatever recovery might be on the back end when the person's gone. So I hope that gives some insight into kind of what I'd be thinking or looking at with respect to all of that. But there's a lot of moving parts in any kind of Medicaid planning analysis.
1: That was a lot. Thank you.
2: I guess we're going to have to to tell them to do that old army adage. I'm going to
0: add a little funny in here. So CYA, call your attorney. (laughs) Call your your attorney. There you go. go.
1: (laughs) Sean, so – I want to tie then the first episode, we talked about wills. Then we talked about trust. If you have someone that were to come into your office right now and they say, hey, I have this will. I just had it done six months ago. I just listened to this podcast and I heard you. How can, you know, I want to roll my will that I have here into a trust. Can I do that? Is there an extra fee? Do you mix things like that? Or do you like to start packages, your own packages?
2: Well, if you had an existing will that said, you know, I want this person to be executor and I want this asset to go to this person, this asset to go to that person, and I want this other thing to go to another person, kind of the traditional will that you'd have in place. If you were going to come in and get a trust put in place, remember, we would do the trust planning, but the trust is going to be the document that governs all of that and says who's going to get what. And we would actually prepare a new pour-over will like we talked about that basically says, I hereby revoke any previous wills. We want to get rid of that one that's out there that says who's going to get what because we don't want to rely on that anymore. We just want to have that backup will that says anything I own that I forgot to get in my trust, I want it in my trust. And then the trust really outlines who's going to be getting what. So you would be kind of starting over in that sense because you're not really rolling anything over. You're, You're starting with a living trust you're going to get assets in that trust and then you're going to have a new will that gets rid of the old one and says, you know, if there's anything I didn't get in my trust, I want to go to my trust. So yeah, I kind of hope that answers that question there.
1: It does. And I I have another question in terms of budget. So, if someone is wondering, well, what's the budget like to get a trust? Do you have a like a suggested budget you would
2: Yeah, you I mean, I think pay? I think that there's two schools of thought on that you know a lot of attorneys still bill by the hour i would counsel or recommend people look for an attorney who are going to do this on a flat fee basis if you do enough of these you know estate planning packages like i do you know what they're going to cost you you know you know what it's going to cost to record deeds you know what it's going to cost to help somebody get some of the accounts funded you know what it's going to cost to prepare all the documents and so you should be talking to somebody who can say up front after talking to you and seeing, you know, okay, so you've got you know three different properties or you've got two properties in a business or whatever their assets and family dynamics are, okay, so this is the plan you need. This is the flat fee for doing that. An attorney should be able to tell you that up front, just like I do with all of my consultations mm-hmm. when clients come in. I let them know exactly what it's going to be up front. And so, I would encourage people to look for a flat fee attorney as opposed to somebody who's doing it by the hour. And then like I've told you or my other clients, you know, then too, it's kind of a win-win because I don't have to track every minute of my life when a client emails me and I respond, right, honey? So I can, mm-hmm. I can get, those, <laughs> I can get no. those emails, I can get those emails and then respond, you know, and, it, and I don't have to track my time and the, and the client doesn't have to worry about emailing me to ask me those kinds of questions. So that's why I like kind of that flat fee approach, which is what we do and it'll kind of just range, you know, if we're if we're going to do like a will-based package for somebody, you know, I think if you're going to go see an attorney, you could expect to pay $1500 for a married couple to do wills and powers of attorney. You know, if you're going to do trusts, you could basically almost double that and depending on how sophisticated the trust planning may be or how many assets have to get put in the trust, how many deeds have to get recorded or whether we're doing any of that special needs trust planning, you know, for special needs beneficiaries or things like that, that price range can kind of depend on the person that you're dealing with. But I think the key is going to somebody who's going to give you a flat quote of what that's going to charge front to end, all in total. So, you know exactly what that is.
1: Yeah.
0: And for me, it was just uh, the ease of the whole process. I mean, right. that, that's what really... You,
1: you, made, know, yeah, yeah. you made the process easy. You, you gave us step one, well, we well, first it was the lunch and learn, right? Yeah. You know. And then from there it was, you know, hey, sign up and come talk to me, come meet me. And that's when I brought this guy with me. And he's how, how good was the food? He's still mad because I yeah, didn't bring yeah. him the food. But anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, and a little bit kind of just building on what we were just talking about too, is you know, going to a flat fee attorney mm-hmm. is gonna do that, making sure that the person's gonna help handle some of that mm-hmm. back end work like we were talking about. So that you don't just have somebody say, you know, here's your trust and good luck now. But get those assets in there, get things funded. And I think what happens a lot of times, you know, at least what my experience has shown, you know, is that you'll see a lot of attorneys who, you know, I mean, maybe it's like an oil and gas attorney and their website says they do wills. Or you'll see a family law attorney or a corporate attorney and they say they do wills. And they really don't focus on estate planning per se. Everybody just kind of gets a cookie cutter will if they do that a lot of times based on some of what I've seen. Not everybody. This is just kind of general speak. And I'm not speaking negative about anybody that offers a will for their clients. But I'm just saying I've done a lot of it, experienced a lot of it through both the probate process or the trust administration process or you know, getting things set up for clients. And this is really all I kind of focus on. And so, I think it's good for somebody to try and find somebody who focuses on the estate planning component because... Mm-hmm. They're so used to dealing with all this, the process becomes a little bit easier. Their office is set up to deal with the estate planning process. They're used to doing things on flat fees. And there's already enough hurdles to getting this done. We need to make the process as easy as possible so that people can actually get it checked off their to-do list. So I hope that made sense. Yes. It does.
0: And again, thank Um. you, Sean, for all of your invaluable insights on trust today. We're sure our listeners will find it as enlightening as we have. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, we kept going back to you because you're a great guy and somebody kept emailing you all hours of the night, it seemed like. (laughs) Uh, And we're looking forward to our next episode of the Legal Trilogy. Will you share with our audience the best way for them to get in contact with you once more?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the easiest way is just going to our website. It's texas-estateplanning.com. It's got our phone number, our address, a bunch of articles and blog resources. You know, if you just want to look up some other information and then that'll give you all of our contact info, best way to reach us, set up a consultation or whatever.
0: Cool. So let's circle back to that essential question. How do
2: I know if and what type of
0: trust is right for me?
1: Well, until next time, remember every chapter you write today shapes your legacy tomorrow. Thank you for joining us at Thoughtful Planning. And just like the vibrant hues of a setting sun, we're wrapping up another episode of Thoughtful Planning. Every shared story and insight is a step closer to turning uncertainty into celebrations of preparedness.
0: Absolutely. And to our listeners, remember that every surprise that comes our way is an opportunity to grow, adapt, and learn. Stay tuned for more stories, expert insight, and of course, a touch of wit in our next episode.
1: We're not just co-hosts, we're fellow travelers on this journey. For more information on additional resources, which will help you take the next step in planning, look for the link in the show notes for our membership. Join us next time for another episode of Thoughtful Planning. Until then, keep living, laughing, and loving every moment.